Give and Take. It's a podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, authors, theologians, political pundits, media people, and assorted others about the lens through which they experience life. My guest today is Jace Broadhurst. Jace is a biblical scholar, a Baptist minister, and someone who has spent some time in the school of suffering over the past few years. He shares his thoughts on faith and the life of the mind, Baptist culture, and dealing with the death of a spouse. Full disclosure, Jace is also a good friend. I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I do. I give you my friend, Jace Broadhurst. Jace, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Welcome to, you're in the bunker right now, my little studio, lower level bunker of the the Langhorn home, which very few people wind up in here, except Bill Boer. Wow. I am really honored. This is great. Yeah. This is a fantastic studio. Thanks. It's not much on um, uh, illumination, a lot of like weird lamps. <laughs> you're right. And a nice little skylight, which I like. Yeah. This is, this is impressive. Well, it, it is. It, it's uh, it's more acoustically than visually impressive, actually. So it's it, it is literally made for radio. Um, I cannot wait to listen to myself. Oh, and you, exactly, Jace. You are a pastor, a Baptist minister. Correct. You, correct. You are. And I, I wasn't sure if there was a question there, or just a statement. Well, yeah, it was. It was. A, I was looking for a verification. Uh, you are correct. I am a pastor and a Baptist minister in Poolsville, Maryland. Yep. Tell us about Poolsville. Poolsville is a wonderfully quaint, small town, um, 5,000 people or so, no lights, no traffic lights, just a couple stop signs here and there. Um, they want to keep it small. It's on an ag reserve, lots of horse uh, farms all around, and yet still a bedroom community to D.C. So we're about 45 minutes outside of D.C. So you have these this uh, economic disparity going on there. A lot of people are making thirty or $40,000 a year, and a lot of them are making 200 plus, um, you know, working on the technology corridor or something like that. So in, in our own church, we've got people worshiping next to each other that are just complete opposites in that area. Are you closer to the $40,000 and then the $200,000 personally? I, I am personally closer to the 40000 than the two hundred. yes. And you have a lovely little establishment in that town, the, Be- the Beagle? Is it the, yeah, the ba- you always call it the Beagle. The Basset? Bassets. The Basset. Yeah. Bassets. And yeah. there's a Basset hound on the... There is. I, I love that place. And it's a wonderful little restaurant and everybody knows it and it's been there for decades, many. When you introduce yourself to people that are not in a traditional religious context and you say, I'm a Baptist minister. Is that what you say? Do you say Baptist minister? No, I never lead with that. In fact, I don't generally uh, introduce myself by my occupation or calling at all. I just introduce myself. Hey, I'm Jace. Hi, I'm Jace. Yeah. And then ask them questions about themselves. So yeah, you don't generally lead with Baptist unless you want complete fake people talking to you for the rest of the time. Have you learned that by experience? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, I've always grown up around Baptists, so I know what we're like, and it's not always um, it's not always the best of they're, they're not always my favorite people. So, and but I think yeah, you you are one. Yeah, I know. How did you become a Baptist if they're not your favorite kinds of? Well, I grew up in the Baptist church. Um, well, will other Baptists hear this? I mean, are like I, I assume every single person in my church will listen because they love me so much. So they're listening to this right now and saying, "What? How dare he?" Um, I bet I think they were. We're self-aware. We know we know who we are. Um, we make fun of ourselves. We know we've got lots of quirks and a lot of problems. We know we suffer from, you know, trying to guilt people and judgmentalism and all the stereotype things. And yet we're we're trying not to be that kind of a person. So I grew up in the Baptist church. I got the hellfire and brimstone kind of preaching. 
I don't do any of those things, um, those general stereotypes that you think of. Um, Does anybody do Hellfire without brimstone? Everybody says, I don't do Hellfire. <laughs> and everybody's like, hey, look, we're yes. Hellfire, but no, just, we promise no brimstone. No brimstone here. No brimstone, only the Hellfire. That's right. Yeah. There's no screaming unless somebody else uh, is preaching. There's no real screaming in our church, just conversations going on, narrative kind of preaching. Um, it, and it's a pretty healthy church. Um, you know, I don't know that that's totally because of me. I'm sure I had something to do with that. But uh, I think most of the people love each other. They're trying to be an influence in their community. They're trying to represent Jesus well. They generally do an okay job at that. Um, there's not a lot of room for me to beat them over the head. And yet, you know, I charge them with something every week, some kind of calling for them to be, uh, to look more like Jesus. What was this week's charge? What was this week's calling? Um, this week, I did not preach. And we we team up with... Um, a what they call themselves a multi-ethnic church, but it's uh, pretty much an African American church. It seems like great friend uh, Chuck Copeland, and he did he did the sermon. And he talked about uh, being an ambassador for Christ. So for me, I've been working through the Book of Acts. So last week was talking about Elymas, uh, that great uh, sorcerer who tries to distract Paulus Sergius from uh, hearing the word of God that Paul had to bring, and Paul has to blind him. Um, it's just a wonderful story. And I just talked about distractions, how you know we're constantly being called not to hear the word of God in our everyday life, and that sometimes you need to be intense. I don't know if you should blind somebody necessarily, but sometimes you've got to get across. You got to get the word across. And there's going to be things that are going to oppose that. Maybe you should blind them. It's the word of God. Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. <laughs> that's, that's right. Although good Paul, good Christ hermeneutics. Didn't, Christ didn't blind many people to my recollection. No, I think he, yeah, he brought people out of blindness. Yes, he made them see. But some commentators say that Paul was hoping that by blinding him, that he would have the same experience that he himself had when Jesus blinded him on the road to Damascus. So Jesus did blind somebody, at least, Paul and and he came out of that and his eyes were Who open. says, whose theory is that? Um, I believe he says, Lord, who are you there? And he said, it's me, you know, the one you're persecuting. No, no, but and I mean the one that blind. the people that think, well, Paul is trying to do to this guy what Jesus did to him. Oh, good grief. I can't remember who in my, in my several commentaries that I read said that. Um, it sounds a little suspect to me. Yeah, but it preaches well. And it makes Paul sound a little bit nicer. So you got to throw it in there, you know, just kind of like, maybe Paul was thinking that. I don't know, but that's not really the point. Here's the point. So, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Sounds suspect to me as well. I'm with you. All right. So Baptist, you are a Baptist. You got this Baptist congregation. You're about, you guys are about 200 folks, right? We're about 100. Probably. 100 folks. There's maybe 150 people who say, this is my church home, but maybe on a given Sunday, 100 people. Now, let me tell you, my wife, who grew up in a very conservative Christian context, we worshiped at your church before, and she said, this is not as Baptisty as I thought. And for that, that was, for her... High praise? That was high praise. <laughs> well, of course, I believe the person delivering the message that week wasn't very Baptisty, and it was probably one of the best messages that I've heard in that church, so... Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. That was me, yeah. everybody, full disclosure. <laughs> uh, so how did, you didn't grow up Baptist. I, I grew up as, yes, as a young person, Baptist, then non-denominational, you know, Baptist with slightly better website. And then... Is uh, that when it, that's the graduating point when you get a better website? Right. You, then, you're, then you're not Baptist anymore. You're non-denominational. Surely there are cert, some Baptist churches with good websites. Uh, yeah. Like Andy Stanley. Yeah. Platt. Um, yeah, sure. All, there's, there's all kinds of people out there. There are Matt Chandler's Baptist. Yeah. They've got great websites, but they don't, they don't generally, uh volunteer the Baptist parts of themselves. I don't think any of their names of their churches have the word Baptist in them, but I might be wrong on that. I'll have to think that one through. Yeah, but I wasn't Baptist. I spent, um, you know, I did my 
my graduate work in a mostly Presbyterian school. So I, I spent, I've only spent one year in a, in a Presbyterian church though, because I was there and I was working on my dissertation and this church called me and said, will you preach for us on the weekends? And I had to feed my family. And so I said, sure. And then you keep talking and then all of a sudden you're the pastor and you're just going to stay there for a couple of years because you're going to go into the academy. You know, you're going to write, you're going to become big and famous for Jesus. And then 11 years later, you're still sitting in this small town and loving the people like crazy. Never would have expected it, but fell in love with this church. So that's where I'm at. It doesn't sound very romantic. Like I never would have <laughs> It's not a very... If the, if I, I did the not. The lady, I the, did not want to fall in love with that lady. So, yeah. All right. I like I, that. I mean, I never wanted to be a pastor. My wife married me. She said, "You're not going to be a pastor, are you?" Because I was doing my first year of seminary. You're not going to be a pastor. No, I'm not going to be a pastor. And then shock. Why did like Why didn't you want to become a pastor? Um, my understanding of pastors were people who went gray in about three years and just dealt with just the heaviest possible things on their shoulders and and made the family very, you know, living, living the life of a pastor is very difficult because people expect things of you all the time in the middle of the night, they call you, you know, somebody needs to get into the building, they'd be showing up at your door, all of those kinds of, and of course they judge you on how you raise your children and every single thing you do. If you decide to flip somebody off in the car, which of course I'd never do as a Baptist pastor, but if I perhaps decided to do such a thing, you know, it would be all around town and people would leave the church and so I, I didn't need that kind of stress. I just wanted the academy, um, just influence and multiply myself out there, multiply hopefully Jesus a little bit more in the world. And then, you know, I, yeah, I don't know what happened. <laughs> I'm still there. It's interesting. That's probably more common than a lot of people think, right? People are going to seminary with no intention of becoming a pastor. Like people actually wanting to do other things and yet going into a seminary, which is primarily oriented traditionally to training practicing ministers. Yeah, I would say the vast majority of people in my seminary were planning to be pastors um, or involved in some sort of mission organization, mission, uh, you know, to the world in their particular case, um, MTW, some some organization that, that sent them overseas teaching and preaching. So um, very few, there were probably only a dozen people in my seminary that I knew of that were planning on going on towards academic work after that. But, it's interesting. You're, one of, you're somebody I know that's changed their mind on things a, a, a couple, a few times and not on inconsequential things. Like, I mean, it seems like you started that you're in a different place, sort of theologically, intellectually, uh, around a host of issues than you were when you started off in seminary and were working through oh, a graduate yeah. study. What was the, like, could you say a little bit about the difference between, Young Jason, older. I'm not going to say old because I just saw you do a bunch of pull-ups. So <laughs> o- older yes. Jace, like what, what if you could chart some key differences on that journey, what would they be? So probably there were three or four different steps in that. Um, obviously, you know, I, I grew up in a, in a more or less fundamentalist home. So I'm not sure that we believe that dinosaurs ever existed or any of those things. Not even at the same time as no, human I don't beings? Th- I don't think they, it was all fake or something. I don't know exactly. I have to ask my parents. I'm not sure they'd remember, but I know that our church was the most conservative church you could possibly have imagined at that time. Um, Does that make them like Jurassic Park more or less? That's a great question. I don't know. I haven't hung out with those people in 40 years, so I'm not sure. Because it's like Hollywood fantasy. The dinosaurs are Hollywood fantasy anyway. I mean, I, I could see it going either way. Right. 
Yeah, I, I don't know. So we we were we were, I was that kind of person, um, and of course, you know, hit a certain time, and I became one of those neo reformed guys um, before neo reformed was cool. Uh, very much, and that's like people that have kind of picked up this Calvinist tradition, usually fed through somebody like John Piper, who's a Baptist Calvinist kind of guy in Minnesota, and they like people like Jonathan Edwards, right, and Puritans, and. Yeah. That's so this would have been before Piper was real big. It would have been more... Um, you got in on the ground level. R.C. Sproul and John MacArthur, you know, the dispensationalist Calvinist, which I haven't figured exactly how all that works. But yeah, R.C. Sproul would have been my hero. And still, to this day, I think, praise God for some of his books. They've changed. They really changed my life and helped me a lot. Um, He's but, a chain smoker and was a heck of a golfer until he had back problems. I, I love his stories of... Uh, I, I remember... Um, Oh, Steve Brown talking about his chain smoking <laughs> because he would, you know, do a seminar, do a preaching and stuff like that and be outside. And he said one day Steve Brown was uh, hanging out with him. I probably shouldn't say this. Am I allowed to? You can say it. It's fine. Steve's going to call me up. Um, and they were sitting on a bench together and, and Steve was smoking his pipe as he was, as he always did. And RC was smoking a cigarette and somebody came up to him and obviously recognized him and he quickly put the cigarette like behind Steve Brown's head so that nobody could see. So hopefully he couldn't see. And so all he remembers is just feeling the smoke rising right up the back of his head. And this woman just kind of looking at his head in this weird way as the smoke from his cigarette. So yes, RC smoke was a chain smoker and um, good guy. Um, decent enough but anyway that's not the question you asked about the smoking sorry about that no that's very interesting though. <laughs> right right not, it seems like someone there had didn't have the courage of their convictions yeah exactly well i mean there's something you you want to t- take people along slowly and that's actually been a lot of my journey you don't want to just go out and show people what you think or what you believe about everything you have to take steps so that they'll continue to listen to you so i hope maybe that's what was happening with him i try to give him the benefit of the doubt on that um i wasn't around that's just a story he told so um seminary of course you know you go through a a time where you start to realize that the bible isn't everything you thought it was and it's a whole lot more complex and of course you're the smart person in your church that's why you went to seminary um and then you're around a bunch of other people who are way smarter than you and and it's it's a time it was truly a, a discouraging almost time. There was probably a good year of my life there where I went through kind of a dark night of the soul. Um, and then that happened a couple more times. So it happened to me. When that was both intellectual and personal. It's kind it, of- it's, it was mostly, in fact, I think all of mine have been more intellectual ones. Um, so I haven't spent a whole lot of time in depression until the last couple of years, like personally. So that's that's a different change. Most of these have been intellectual. And interestingly, everyone that I've gone through has made me question my faith and then made it stronger. Like they haven't they haven't really attacked it. They haven't really hurt it. They've just opened my mind to God being way bigger and his word being way bigger than I thought it was, which has been which has been wonderful. It's not easy going through it because you have to rethink all the stuff that you had before. And I'm still in the middle of, you know, my last one, uh, rethinking all everything that had to do with it. So, you know, the PhD does the same thing. And then for some, but you can still, you, your house is still pretty strong, right? You can ignore the things that you can see right in front of you just because you want to hold on to what you were holding on to about what the Bible does, what the Bible is. I want to believe this. And so you can just skip passages. Even if you're, even if you're researching them intensely, you can just move past them somehow. It's, it's almost magic. And then at some point it all crumbles down, hmm. all falls down and you realize life's a little different than you thought it was. Um, 
the Bible's different than you thought it was. God might be different than you thought he was. Maybe the Bible is not the best portrayal of who God is. Uh, there's a whole lot of different things that probably shouldn't say that out loud. <laughs> yeah. Is some of the challenge like that... I heard Pete Enns tell the story that he was talking to George Marsden, who's, of course, Pete's a biblical scholar. George Marsden is one of the preeminent American religious historians. And he was saying why he chose doing religious history. And he said, well, I, I knew if I did theology or biblical studies and PhD level academic work, I couldn't really be a good scholar because the so- social circles I was uh, in, yeah. they would just say, well, I don't care if you learn that from experts at Harvard. It just can't be true because what we think. Whereas right. nobody really cares what you say about George Whitfield or John. It's not really, it doesn't right. change your views on the, the, the eternal decrees of the sovereign God or the inerrancy of the Bible. Is some of the reason why in certain conservative religious circles, evangelical Protestant circles, that those intellectual movements are can be so traumatic is that believing is tied so closely to belonging. And if it gets out that you believe things that are verboten, they're all, you know, they're on the taboo list, you really could not belong to a group that's become like family to you. Yeah. Well, I'm, yeah. I mean, we see that in evangelicalism big time, right? Everybody's being kicked out of the family because, you know, they call this, you know, you're, you're a self-proclaimed evangelical. Well, I mean, there is no other, any other such thing. We're all self-proclaimed evangelical. We care about the gospel, but yeah, the, the, the line, we, we're not allowed to cross this line. There's this, and, and we don't all know exactly what it is. It depends on who you are as to whether you think I've crossed your line and then I'm kicked out of the family. So I can't belong anymore if I don't believe exactly the way that you do or within a certain certain framework. And, and of course we want that, right? I'm, I'm a biblical theologian, so I, I don't, I tend to not as like... As opposed system- to an unbiblical theologian. <laughs> as opposed to systematic theologian. Um, but I appreciate them because they keep me within some sort of a box, right? They say, okay, whoa, 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 you're going a little bit far. And whether I agree with them that I'm going far or not, at least I'm reminded, hey, there are creeds, there are confessions, there is a, a unity in the church for a long time. And I, I need that. I need to be reminded that when I'm experimenting with the text or when I'm, when I'm thinking thoughts that might not be helpful to me. What are like two or three things that older Jace believes that if you could go back in time, like back to the future in your DeLorean and you found young Jace, like Biff, it's leave you. You sound like a moron when you say that. But if you were like, what would, what would, what are things that, that young, that young Jace would be scandalized that old Jace, older Jace believes? I think I was one of those, um, here are the lines, do not cross them. If you are not a reformed confessional, um, very strict understanding of this, then you're probably, I won't, I would never say it, of course, but you're probably outside of the faith and you need to come in. So by reform confession, I mean people that these Protestant creeds that kind of come up in like the late 16th, early 17th century, that these are sort of the high point of theological formulations of of belief and you better not stray too far from there. So for me, that meant Westminster Confession or London Baptist Confession, those kinds of things. And you pretty much hold to those with maybe an exception or two here and there. I would guess, I mean, I haven't read the confession in a long time, but I would guess I have more than a few exceptions to it at this point. So there's been some pretty significant changes in my in my views on how strict it, what it means to be a Christian um, as to when you're in or out of that group. I think probably the other biggest thing for me. What did it mean then and what does it mean now? Like what, young Jace, old, older Jace? Um, well, I don't want to, I don't want to bring it down to simply... Christian now means following Jesus, because I still feel like you have to define what that means, who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. But I, I think there's just a humility maybe in a, a grace 
in people who are trying to work out their theology or trying trying to think it through. Um, and even people who don't have much of a theology. I mean, everybody has a theology whether they know it or not. But um, I guess, you know, I never would have considered the, the liberals to be in, whatever that meant. I never would have considered the neo-Orthodox to be in. Um, I know that would upset you a lot. What? Uh, neo-Orthodox. Oh, why would that upset aren't, me? Aren't you a big fan of Bultman? I'm not a huge. Uh, I'm not a huge Just Bart. fan. Okay. I like Bart. I like. Okay. You know, I, I, I don't think that bad. term is helpful though. But it's yeah. an umbrella term for a bunch of I, thinkers I totally that don't agree. have a lot in common. Yeah. But um, yeah. so I would have, you know, Catholics would have been out. Um, probably the charismatics. That's a lot of that's charismatics. Like a bi- would you just been out. you yeah. kicked out a billion people. Uh, I know Eastern Orthodox. You know that whole world. That's over there, another prob- couple hundred. They're probably out. Yeah. So pretty much only the evangelicals. We're Christians, and of course, only the evangelicals as I define them. And I, I would never have been able to state it like that. But as you get past that and you start looking back, you realize how strict you really were on some of that stuff. Um, I remember teaching a Bible study that grew, grew great in number. And I, the reason why, probably, probably because I was so strict in that. Like, I always wonder, why has John MacArthur got such a big following? Well, the reason is because he, he knows what he thinks about it, everything. There is a, it's 100% certain this is what it is. And people want, were drawn to that. We like this black and white crowd, right? So, and I think that's who I was. I, I knew the answers. As long as people know the answers, then you get a good following. Are people drawn to that less out of, for its spiritual uh, power or, or their ability to get them in touch with something transcendent or something? And more, I mean, it seems more about anxiety management. Like if, like if I go somewhere... And I know that there are rules in black and white. And then I'm because le- there's a lot in the world I can't control. And so if someone tells me, gives me some markers, things feel more in control. I think you're. I think it's absolutely right. Yeah, there's a fear of being out of control. Yeah, and if there's nothing, if there's nothing to tie you to something, um, we talked about this in, in seminary and, and PhD all the time. What, what is it that ties us? You know, how close should we be tied to? This Jesus, like, you know, is it, um, are, are we all just very connected, very closely connected, or is there kind of like a tetherball kind of idea where we're, you know, allowed to swing pretty free as long as the pole's in the middle, or is it kind of a kite picture? How far away are you to get? So I would have been somebody who had to be touching the pole at all times before, and now I'm probably more of a flying the kite kind of guy. Hmm. Um, there's a lot more freedom in that. So I, I'm not, I haven't. I haven't gone too far, but of course, that's obviously my opinion as to what's too far. Young Jace, so. historical Adam and Eve. Oh boy, oh you you went straight to there. Um, hmm. Okay, well, obviously, Young Jace. Um, yeah, yes, of course. yes. It's that, it's that simple. Yeah. Older yeah. Jace. Um, older Jace doesn't care that much about the question. Uh, I'm not sure that anybody in the Bible times really would have, you know. So I'm a hermeneutics guy, so I'm more interested in what the text is trying to get across, and it's probably not trying to get across history. Um, so that doesn't mean that there's not anything historical going on in Scripture. I think there are all kinds of ties to history. I just I just don't try to figure them all out. I think the Adam and Eve story is is much larger than that. Is a you know Adam being mankind, Eve being the mother of the living, Abel being you know vapor, uh, those kinds of ideas, a, a talking snake. Those are those are symbols. Those are telling you right off. This is a bigger story. It's an archetypal story. It's about mankind or about Israel and Israel's removal from the temple. So you know the garden is the temple. Um, Adam is a priest. 
the same kind of language, the walking back and forth in, in the garden story is the same thing that happens in the Levitical priests. They would walk back and forth. They'd have conversations with God. They were called to represent God to the people and the people to God, uh, that, that mediator position. And that was Adam's position. And he was kicked out of the garden and the priests are, or sorry, Israel is kicked out of the, uh, out of Canaan, out of the promised land and moved out. So I see it as a, as the larger story. Um, and, and I don't have all the answers to all of that, but it, it's at least a larger story is how I probably want to put Sounds it. Sounds like revisionist history. Yeah, I hope, just kidding. I hope not. No, just kidding. Yeah. I, I think that's actually, you asked what the different ones were. That, that's definitely one of them. But the reason for that is because of my understanding of what scripture is. So that was a huge battle. Um, people kept trying to get me to get involved in all of these other ethical kinds of questions. And I said, I put it all on hold and said, I really got to figure out what the Bible is. This is my, this is my task for years. I just worked on that. And I really wanted the Bible to speak to me instead of trying to put my grid on the Bible. And that's what I'd done all my life. The Bible had to be inerrant, it had to be inspired, it had to be authoritative. All great words had to be infallible, right? But I wanted to know what those meant not from my reformed grid, but from what the Bible was trying to put out there. And so that, that allowed me to relook at stories like Adam and Eve or like any, you know, all, any kinds of, you know, gospel stories where there seemed to be, um, I don't want to use the word contradictions, but where there seemed to be problems. There are concerns that the Bible itself brings up purposefully, I think, even. But don't you even think that like we're framing it as a problem already prejudices the question? Like if, if, if we, phrase different ways of telling a story as a pro like i mean it's interesting i think t.s Eliot may be quoting nietzsche or something i, I think this i think this is something. he's like some pre-socratic somewhere says we have a mind-body problem and now it's like oh the mind but before i mean people understand that there's some different aspect to like their body you know to to there's there's a connection between the non-physical part of your personhood and the physical part, but it's not necessarily a problem. But then once we give it the problem label, then we've got to come up with explanations to solve that. Like even the word problem, it, like sure. changes the way. Like you don't pick up like a novel and, and think of the problem. Generally, unless it's a really shitty novel, but like I mean, it's like it, you don't immediately think of problems. You're there to engage literature. You want to read a story that will it will somehow you know engage you as a person. Sure, but if you if you come at that literature as if it's a constitution, and this is what I must believe, then it's a problem for you to read it that way. So from the context, I, I 100% agree with everything you're saying, but from the context that I was coming at the Bible... That's good, because if you didn't 100% agree, we're stopping. We're, we're done, done. right, we're yeah, done. I got you. Um, the context I'm coming at is, here's a grid on the Bible, and it means that it's perfect, and what perfect means to me meant that there's all kinds of problems in the Bible with that view. So I had to rethink my view so that it wasn't a problem in the same sense that it was before. So the Bible's still full of tons of problems, in my opinion. Um, and and it, it's messy. It's a huge mess. So I don't, I don't think I've solved anything, but I've at least allowed it to speak on its own and allowed it to have the problems. What older From Jay, my perspective, problems. What older Jay say to younger Jay, look, you might be reading the Bible literally, but I don't know that you're taking it seriously. Um, no, because I, I think saying you... Sp- Taking it seriously is kind of judging my heart at that time. Um, so I, I, I was really trying to be fair. I was, I was very serious about it, and I would have considered my view to be a very high view of Scripture. You were an earnest young man. I was very earnest, and and I did a lot of things good. I, I don't mean to um, to put down to denigrate any of the, what I was doing then or what any of my friends were doing. We were we were trying to see God, and and we were trying to understand Him. And I think in many cases we. 
we did, hmm. even though we went about it the wrong way. I think, hmm. uh, you know, I think there's people without any hermeneutical abilities at all that actually do hear from God in the Bible. So I know it's amazing that way. You sound religious. Uh, yeah, I, I think God speaks through his word, through the preached word, through the read word, through the prayed word, through the sung word, whatever it is. Um, Jesus comes and makes himself known to us, even in our in our huge problems. Because I don't even begin to pretend that now old Jace has got it where young Jace didn't, right? I think I have learned some things since I was young. That's what maturity is. But I know 10 years now, I'm 10 years from now, I'm going to listen to this podcast and go, what a young idiot you were. Maybe you'll be like, I arrived then and arrived now. <laughs> and you said old Jace. I said older. I didn't call you old. Uh, well, I'm, I'm getting old. I, I remember it. I, I play soccer every Monday and my knees hurt right now. So I'm definitely getting older. If Is there something that you believe right now that you're kicking around that if you're like, look, if I put this in circulation, I'd be out of the Baptist tribe. I'd definitely be gone. Like this would, this would be the straw that breaks the Baptist's back. Well, I think you, you've already asked that question. Uh, you asked what I thought about the historical Adam and I tried to. That would get you out. I, oh yeah. I tried to dodge that a lot. So there's, there's a lot of things that I have in my mind that I'm pretty but sure. But they can't really kick you out as a Baptist. Your congregation could. My, say, my congregation could fire me. My elders could fire me. They could say, this is not uh, something that we hold to, and we, we'd rather you not be teaching this anymore. Now, this is that particular subject, we did a whole um, 12 weeks on this kind of idea where evolution and Adam and the genome and all that stuff. I guess Scott McKnight has recently uh, done a, one with Venema on that, which is interesting. Um, and you mentioned Pete Enns, you know, the evolution of Adam. So those, those kinds of ideas. We, we did that. We used John Walton as kind of our text, and we thought through it. So they didn't kick me out. They love me. The, the different, I love them. So I'm not out to make them think like me. I'm out to just, I'm out to help them think. And in that helping them to think, to see that Jesus, that the Bible is considerably more complex than we thought it was. Um, the Bible's more complex. Maybe Jesus is a lot simpler. I, I don't, I, yeah, I don't know how to do that in just one quick little podcast, but, hmm. um, so I don't think they're going to kick me out. And no, you can't be just kicked out of the Baptist church. It's pretty hard to do. You'd have to be blatant heresy, but I would definitely lose a lot You can get kicked out of a, a Baptist of church pretty easily, Yes, but not the Baptist church. <laughs> that's correct. But I'd lose a lot of friends and, and that's all, you know, there's this culture of fear out there. The same thing that Doesn't seminary professors suck? have. That, I mean, if, yes, yeah, we can't be honest. It, it, there's one thing I've learned from some Jewish friends over the past few years is this like disconnect between believing and belonging, which I think, I mean, Christianity, it, it's, it, I mean, our, our virtues are always our vices, right? So part of what is interesting about Christianity as a faith is it's so theological. Like, it, 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 whereas opposed to Judaism, you know, you could go into an Orthodox synagogue and, you know, observant guys praying there. And a lot of them probably don't believe in God. At least a chunk of them probably don't believe in God that morning and are still observant and praying. And I think, and, and, and you could be an atheist Jew and you're still part of the family. And I wonder if, if something like that, Maybe not to the, I, I mean, and when I say maybe not to the extreme, I just don't think Christianity, because of it, the nature of its theological DNA, probably couldn't go that far. But, but it seems like a gesture in that direction would give people space to actually be who they were. Yeah. Yeah. I like, I like what you I like where you're going. I'm not sure I would go, um, as you said, you kind of reined yourself back in there, but... Because I, I don't like know, the because the, because the DNA, Judaism and Christianity are so different. Right. On, on even though they we share a sacred text and have a sort of family development together, and, and, and it's got good, good, you know, good 
parts and bad parts. Yeah. I mean, mostly most of the bad parts on the Christian side of the family tree. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's uh, yeah. You see that you see that very clearly in just you know the holy writings. You know how Rabbi this says this, Rabbi this says this, Rabbi, and they're all authoritative, but they all kind of disagree with each other. That's that's a very cool concept that I wish we could probably have a little bit more of. And maybe maybe that is the way we should be seeing the Bible a little bit more. Like Paul says this, James says this, yeah, and they're both authoritative. Well, what does that mean now for it to be authoritative? Do they disagree with each other? Does Ruth actually disagree with Ezra? You know, Ruth, they should be, they should, you know, everybody should be, um, uh, foreigners are allowed in, in the monarchy. Yes, that that is the main point. Ezra, um, you need to get rid of all your foreign wives right away. Would they disagree if they were talking together? I, I probably tend to think they might. They might disagree a little bit on that. And yet both are authoritative for, for different times. Maybe we need to think about it more as, no, I don't know if I want to go there, but I was going to say as Proverbs, um, you know, look before you leap, he who hesitates is lost. Which one is true? Well, yeah, they're both true for different times, for different, you know, what the, what the circumstance is. Maybe there's more, all I'm trying to do is probably connect with what you originally said, that maybe there needs to be a little bit more freedom, that the circle is larger than we think, and it, it leaves for that space for you guys to feel a little bit more safe. Yeah, T.S. Eliot said he always, he always preferred description, thick description to explanation, because explanation presu- like presumes, I've solved the problem, it's it, and, and, my, and your explanation and mine probably have to be opposed, as opposed to if you're describing hmm. this side of the statue, I'm describing that side of the statue. Our descriptions can enrich each other because they're standing looking at a statue from different, you know, so it, description just frames things less adversarial, yeah, in a less like adversarial that. manner. You know, maybe yeah. we could have interpretive posture like that. If we, if we as Christian academics would be able to figure out how to do what I think is the point of writing a book, you know, when we write a book, it's to add to the conversation. It's not to say, this is the answer and this is, this is 100% what I believe. It's just, I've learned a few more things. Let me throw these into the mix. And yeah, now there's going to be 50 reviews on it that are going to knock me down, but I'm I wanted all of those. Those are good things. They weren't, I, it wasn't for the purpose of getting my name out there or becoming a superstar or making sure that my theory is the one that's accepted by everybody, but maybe it take, took us one more step forward. So I, I like that. Different views, just looking on, and we enrich each other by those conversations. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Can I ask you, you went through, you had a pretty significant personal tragedy a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, your wife, uh, Jack, who, I, who I've met, uh, yeah, she, Develop, she was diagnosed with cancer and 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 died. Uh, that is, first off, I, you know, I mean, I'm sorry for your loss. <laughs> no, I mean, it feels weird to say it again. Uh, but I appreciate it. I mean, that. So you have you have three boys. I, I personally, anybody going through a tragedy like that, it's it just it 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 wrecks your life. I mean, your whole life. You spend your whole life building a certain kind of reality and with someone you love and care about and you have a plan it, that, it, you know, we'll, we'll do this together. And, and all of a sudden that is ripped out from underneath of you. And yet you're also a, also a pastor who your congregation, I, I mean, I've met, I've met them. I've, I've been there. They're, they're a lovely people. And they're like, you know, you guys are more like a family than some churches. You know, I mean, you're close, you're small and they're grieving the loss and you're grieving as a husband and as a pastor with them. How, like, can can you can you say that just strikes me as incredibly hurtful, complicated, and confusing? <laughs> hurtful, complicated, and confusing. Yeah, I think that's fair. I can list a few more. Uh, well, let's yeah, list a few <laughs> no, more. No, that's all right. Um, yeah, it, it's been 
it's been devastating. It's been crushing both as a husband and as a pastor. I think our church has suffered um, in in ways that I can't even I can't even verbalize. We they lost. Um, she was she was the life. I hate to I hate to put it like any no, nobody is irreplaceable. Um, but she was um, a major energy behind everything that went on. Um, we got excited about things because she was excited about them. So she was. If any, for someone who didn't want to be a, a pastor's wife, <laughs> she became a phenomenal pastor's wife. Um, so on a personal, you know, for us, our, our family is destroyed. This has been, it's only been a year and a half. So, um, she got sick five years ago and then, you know, breast cancer is easily conquerable today. And so we conquered it and everything. And then she, uh, just, just a few months before she died, she just said, you know, I'm having trouble breathing. Sometimes I come up the stairs and I'm winded and I'm like, let's go check it out. Never, never entered our mind that it could be something more. And between diagnosis and her last day was less than four months. So, or yeah, I guess about four months. Um, so we had a lot to, (laughs) to wrestle with in a very quick time. And she was amazing through it all. Um, that's not fair. She was not amazing through it all. She was amazing. She came to church even up to a week, the Sunday before she died. She died on a Friday, I believe, and she was there on Sunday. And she had to be, you know, kind of held, brought in by people on both arm, both sides to bring her in. She just sat in the back. Um, but she had... It was it was devastating because she asked questions like the peace that passes all understanding. Where is it? Hmm. It's not passing any understanding. And I've spent the last two years trying to figure out what the heck that verse has to do with anything. Hmm. Um, you know, we 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 dealt with Psalm eighty eight in you know the darkest day. You know, when when things are as bad as they can be, darkness is my only friend. Um, I'm still feeling that. I've never I've never felt depression in my life. I've never been, you know, circumstances here and there, depressed for a few days, weeks, maybe. But this has been, um, yeah, this has been devastating. Did you tell people before this happened that, like, about the pa- the peace that passes all understanding? I don't think I'd ever preached on that. No, and I was never one of those pastors who who was into trite sayings. So I, I don't think I had to swallow most of my words, which is kind of nice to go back there and realize, gosh, I should never, I'm so sorry. I should never have said any of these things. I had read enough, maybe, even though I hadn't experienced it. And I'm not good. I'm not, I'm not super empathetic. I'm not super compassionate. I'm more the person who says, you know, just tackle this, get, get over it. Gut it out. Yeah. Right. Um, but as a pastor, I learned a lot in those 10 years that you can't be that person. That's, that's not who we are. Um, so I don't, I don't feel like I went, um, I don't feel like I had to go back and, and re say anything, but I hadn't spent a ton of time in lament. Um, you know, joy is definitely a more enjoyable conversation. Uh, we did go through Habakkuk early on in my years there and that helped me think through a lot. You know, God, why are you doing this? Oh, you want, you think this is bad. Um, here, the Assyrians are going to come and destroy you just to make it worse. Um, and that's how I'm going to save you. Habakkuk's a strange book. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't think I had those trite sayings. So I didn't, I didn't have to reckon with, uh, with re reinterpreting that verse, but I had to wrestle with it fresh with my congregation because she didn't have that piece. And I, I gotta say, I'm not sure that I still have that piece. What do you mean? Say the piece that passes all understanding, right? Does anybody have that piece? I mean, does anybody, I would have said for sure that I did before. Yeah. Because I mean, it's easy to have peace that passes all understanding when there's nothing, you know, I guess you have to come to that spot to really understand what it is to not understand. <laughs> I mean, it passes all understanding. There's a piece that goes beyond what you can possibly fathom. Uh, I didn't need that piece. I was okay. Everything was okay. 
before and now I need it and now it seems distant. So I would have, I would have almost preferred not to have God as my father because if God's my father, I would expect him to come through for me. Um, so there was a lot of doubt, you know, God, you know, if you're, if you're a distant God, then I understand why all of this happened. But you said, I mean, I've read your word. You've said, you know, are you faithful? You're righteous. You're just, why does this happen? I mean, it's, it's classic theodicy, right? Why do these bad things happen to good people? We were trying to do exactly what you've called us to do, and you gave us the worst possible thing we can we can imagine. And so, yeah, there's there's going to be some wrestling. There's going to be some doubt. There's going to be some uh, death to old ideas. There's going to be a church that's in uh, a state of perpetual mourning, it seems like. We can't seem to totally get out of it. Um, and, you know, I didn't walk up to the pulpit every week and cry um, or even talk about this. And I've probably only brought her up in four or five sermons since then because I don't want them to constantly um, have that on their minds. It, it's it's fresh on everybody anyway, even a year and a half in. So I don't remember what your first question was. That's that's the problem when you start asking these questions. I'm gonna <laughs> just go off emotionally, probably. I wonder if if the congregation's kind of caught up in that kind of pain for a while. I wonder if that's almost. I wonder if there's not a lot of people that would prefer that kind of place than a place where things are, there's a religious veneer or things are sort of the power of positive thinking and onward and upward. I mean, I, I, mean, I think that that that's interesting. I, I mean, I think for some people, I think that could be a, a strangely refreshing, inviting space. Yes. And I think the problem or, or the the reality of all churches is that there are some people who desperately need that and some people who probably desperately need it, but don't want it, that are afraid of that kind of, that kind of open space. So even among my elder board, when I was going to preach a sermon and, you know, I have words in there, like the peace that passes all understanding, this is crap. God is totally lying. Like I said that in the sermon and my elders, I had elders were like, uh, you can't say that kind of stuff in your sermon. Mm. And other elders are saying, actually, this is the first time we feel like you're being authentic and real. It's not like I'm, you're going to close off by saying, I hate God and I've given everything up. They've read the whole sermon. It does reconcile itself a little bit at least, Yeah. but, but it was, there was an authenticity there. Like, you know, I, I think we need that. I think in the church, we need that desperately, but you still have a lot of people that don't feel the same way. If, if you had come to me during this time and said, you know, um, God works all things together for good, or um, God will give you the peace that passes all understanding. Well, Kelly Capick said in his book, he said, if if Paul were to say that to me, <laughs> I would throttle him. I would I would think much, much stronger language than that. If, if I'm laying on my bed with my wife as she's taking her last breaths as I was, and somebody put their arms around me and said, I love you, um, God works all things together for good. I, I, seriously, I, I would have just turned around and punched them. There would have been like, don't give me any of those empty platitudes. They don't mean anything. And they're not empty platitudes. They're, they're real. They're Bible. I just don't need to hear them. So I needed the authenticity, the real. I need people to say, I have absolutely no answers and this is crushing and I'm in hell with you right now. That's, or it's just sit aside and be in hell with me. Um, and sometimes I still, I still need that. And people have been good that people have not given me those. Well, Facebook gave me a lot of those. Um, text gave me a lot of those, but people who know me, I, I didn't get that. And I think that was, that was good. Do you think it's true that most people need to receive those kinds of truths about peace and understand like I, I, no matter i think nobody in suffering can be told those kinds of things i mean those are things that have to be received almost yourself i mean people can't give you those 
Yeah, I think that's, discipleship, I think, is a major part of the church life. I think we give you those things to prepare you for suffering. Um, and so they are in there somewhere. They're in the back of your mind. You can know them to be true and hate them during the time of suffering. So I think it's okay for me as a preacher to say those things. In fact, I almost think it's necessary for me to say those things. I'm not going to say those things on the week that we are mourning from a funeral necessarily. I'm going to let, I'm going to let us sit in that space, in that real space where life is crap. Um, this hard, you know, in between heaven and hell, as Luther says, or Oberman says about Luther, this, this middle ground spot. Um, I, I want that. I want that space to be open to that. But I do think they need to hear that God is on their side, right? That he's still good, that he still loves them. Um, I, I think that's the beauty of the laments, Right? There are some laments, like Psalm 88, that do not reconcile themselves. They're hellish. Darkest is my only friend is where it ends. <sighs> okay, that's horrible. But those same authors, you know, these sons of, sons of human or Korah, I don't even remember, um, you know, have, have reconciling songs too, where God is still good. So I think we need to notice those kinds of things in there, that there is this back and forth struggle throughout Scripture. Some of the Scriptures are joyful. Some of them are, you know, lament, lamentations, right? A whole whole book of crying out, why are we here? Why are we in this miserable place? And not getting an answer. Yeah. And just sitting in that. And I think that's how you said it. Just Is it okay to just to be in that spot without any answers? I, I think it's pretty good. Yeah, Brueggemann, his book on the Psalms, Theology of the Psalms, says there's sounds of orientation, which is like, hey... Yeah. Man, God's word's good. You, 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 you know, you're next to the law. You're like a tree plant by the roots. Exactly. And then there's like disorientation, where yeah, darkness is my only friend. You know, like it's, it's, you know, he says on the other side, there's psalms of reorientation, and they're yeah. they're chastened hope. I mean, they're 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 songs of belief, but belief that has been really on the ground. In the, the psalms of orientation often seem like they're not written on the ground. They're, they're kind of written in a simulation or something, you know, whereas the psalms of reorientation, I mean, these are faith that's actually been in places that seem God forsaken. And yet that faith looks at it as not yet God forsaken. Yeah. I like that. Brugman's been awesome in my life. Can I read you something? Yes, please. It's something you may have read probably, but um, this is from Nicholas Walterstorff's Lament for a Son. Uh, great book. And for anybody that's, it's a great book in general, I think. And it's a book, I mean, he lost his adult son, son was his 20s, lost him. And he's a philosopher at Yale at the time, mm-hmm. uh, or a Christian philosopher. And his son uh, dies in a rock climbing accident in his 20s. And um, Lament for a Son was is basically his writings for a season after that he eventually published. Mm-hmm. He says, God is love. That is why he suffers. To love our suffering sinful world is to suffer. God so suffered for the world that he gave up his only son to suffering. The one who does not see God's suffering does not see his love. God is suffering love. So suffering is down at the center of things, deep down, where the meaning is. Suffering is the meaning of our world, for love is the meaning, and love suffers. The tears of God are the meaning of history. But mystery remains. Why isn't love without suffering the meaning of things? Why is suffering love the meaning? Why does God endure his suffering? Why does he not at once relieve his agony by relieving ours? We're in it together, God and we, together in the history of our world. The history of our world is the history of our suffering together. Every act of evil extracts a tear from God. Every plunge into anguish extracts a sob from God. But also the history of our world is the history of our deliverance together. I mean, is God, does God suffer? (laughs) 
I think I should ask the philosopher in the room more. <laughs> I'm not a Does philosopher. God suffer? You're more of a philosopher than I am. Um, I mean, Jesus is our is our uh, picture of God. So he suffered on the cross. So there is a, there is that sense in which he suffers, and I think that's uh, that's honestly been one of the only things that's held me together is not that all things work together for good, um, but that he's walking alongside with me. That he's been through this and he suffers too. So I I do think it sounded to me almost like suffering was a I don't want to say a positive thing, but it's it's real. And so I'd said something like, um, you know, Jack handled everything very well. And then I went back on that and said, well, actually, she probably didn't handle everything well. And now I'm going to go back on that again and say, yeah, I guess she probably did handle everything well because she was real. She 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 asked those deep questions, those like, well, where is where is God then right now? Because I'm praying and it doesn't sound like he's listening. And things didn't you know, things didn't, uh, didn't work out wonderfully. She didn't, you know, in her last minutes, see beautiful lights or everything being perfect. Uh, the last week was total hell, total hell. There was, I, I don't find anything all that redemptive in any of it other than after the fact and, and looking back and saying, I know that, I know that God must have walked with me. And some of that is just telling myself that, right. And the church telling me that, uh, that has been a huge, I know I, now I'm just ten, just going off on tangents, but that's been a huge part of all of this. Like that idea that 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 the church. See, I feel like in this new in this new world of churchiness, the church is considered to be not really that important in our life. We can be spiritual, we can do all these things without the church. We can love God and all that. But the peace that passes all understanding, it's almost like God is calling us to find that peace that passes all understanding. Not to not that we'll just have it, like there is a peace, but to search for it, to to grab hold of it with all of your might, even though you're not feeling like it even in the midst of hell, grabbing hold of heaven and just saying, I'm going to hold on. And sometimes you can't do that. And so that's why I bring back this this church. So I, I don't know that I could do it. I stood up to in, in my pulpit and I said, all right, here's the deal. I, I know most pastors would just, this would end their ministry. I'm done. I said, but I can't have this in my ministry, mm. be, mainly mm. because I need you guys right now. Mm. So I've been taking care of you for 10 years or nine years at that time. Um, I need you to take care of me now. So I think we when our faith is weakest, that's why the church comes around. Sometimes they have to believe for us, certainly with us, but sometimes for us. So, you know, you just make yourself be there, even though you're really wondering whether this is the best place for you and have them hold on. They mm. lock arms with you and pull you ahead, mm. even though you're stuck in, in the mire. They're, they keep you going because sometimes you just have to keep going. <laughs> and and their love is the only stuff that can do that. So I, I praise God for my church, even though they're probably upset with me and what I said about Adam. Um, they... <laughs> They've held me together and they've held my, held my kids, kids together. My kids all of a sudden got 20 new moms hmm. that took care of them and, you know, bring them dinner and take, just show love to them. So the church is very meaningful to me. God loves the church. So do I. Hmm. What does Augustine say? The church is a whore, but she's still my she's mother. Still my mom. That's right. Yeah. And I wonder, you know, Bonhoeffer said that, um, only the suffering God can help. And I wonder also if like yeah. the church somehow is at its best as a fellowship of, of sufferers, you know, when you're not in it alone. I mean, some that's, and I think so. I was just uh, listening to this interview with a Hannah Arendt scholar on, on being, and she was saying that talking about Arendt's um, book, the origins of totalitarianism. And she, she was saying that like, it seems that totalitarian possibilities come when everyone feels so alone. There's just this alienated hmm. loneliness. And I wonder how much of so much of the derisive stuff in life it, it, it becomes unbearable largely because of the loneliness sure, of it. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. If we'd all just admit we're all, <laughs> we're all struggling and come together. Yeah. Hmm. 
Can I read you something else? Yes, please. I've read this to the second person I've read this to. Like I, find, I, re, I read it more and more to more and more people. Um, it's from a, uh, I think I can call Melissa a friend, uh, Melissa Phoebus. She's a memoirist and a professor of English. She's a wonderful person. I read a book called Abandon Me. And she's talking about her own abandonment issues in life. And she talks about reconnecting with her, I think her biological father. And she winds up going to his evangelical church. And here's a sermon on Jonah. And she writes about that experience. And she says, Jonah, whose name means dove, is not brave. He simply exhausts all his other choices. The only thing left to choose is God's will. And even then... After proclaiming his prophecy, Jonah shakes his fist at the Lord. His destiny does not give him peace. It, enrage, it enrages him. It's not that he want, It's not what he wants. He begs God to kill him, but God doesn't kill Jonah. God's mercy often doesn't come in the form of erasure. And the story of Jonah seems a parable of what I have often suspected, that love is a great choose-your-own-adventure story. Every choice leads the hero to the same princes, the same cliff. There are alternative routes, but there is only one ending. If you make it there, every love is a sea monster in whose belly we learn to pray. <laughs> that is beautifully written. Tell me who that is again. Melissa Phoebos. She's okay. a fa- should read everything she writes. Okay. She's a, she's a fabulous um, memoirist and writer and student of literature and teacher of literature. Yeah. I could put words together like that. I would, be <laughs> if very any happy. of us could put together words like that. Yeah. How, yeah. So if God's mercy is, does not come in the form of erasure, I mean, how is it coming to you these days when you're a year and a half out of a tremendous loss? Um, how does God's word continue to come to me? Mercy. How does God's mercy come to me? Um, well, I mean, I could probably state all the wonderful things that have happened. So it's not that my year and a half has just been straight misery. Um, my children are well adjusted more or less, even though they're they're We spend a considerable amount of time crying about things. They're doing okay. Um, you know, I do realize that there is a possibility of relationships to continue on. So there's been mercy in those ways. Um, I, I still have a church that loves me. So that's been super merciful. And, uh, you know, I have book projects and writing and things like that, that, so I still have interests. So I think all of those are God's mercy on me. Just the normal, just common things that happen in life is him, him being merciful. Um, I, I really think I, sometimes I wonder, you, you mentioned the aloneness, how does anybody survive? So the greatest, the greatest mercy to me has been my um, community. And that's a community of faith, my family, all of those friends in Philadelphia, for instance. Um, that, that's that been God's mercy to me. That's him showing his great love to me, hmm. um, that I'm not doing this alone. Hmm. So, And I've got a good enough friends that don't give me those kinds of answers that make me want to punch them. But, <laughs> well, at least most of them. That allow me to just be with them. Would you like to marry again? Would you like to be remarried? Yeah, I would. Um, I'm not ready for that yet. Uh, I am, I have started a relationship with someone that I enjoy. Um, and I think we've both realized that I have to figure out whether I can love again. Um, so I can say that I, (laughs) that's been the hardest thing to get used to. I I was with Jack for 26 years. So does it feel like uh, a betrayal at all to love again? It doesn't feel like a betrayal because she was super kind. Um, Jack was, she, she pretty much told me that I was going to get married again and that I was to be an excellent husband to somebody else. Hmm. So I must do that. I, I, she, not for her, but that's what she thought. I, that's how I, that's how I excel. That's how I thrive is, is in that relationship. And 
And she thought I was a good husband. And not only did she tell me that, she told lots of people in my church to tell me that several months after she was gone. So I had people writing me emails and telling me different things like, I need you to tell me, your wife told me this in confidence and I need you to hear it when you're ready. In confidence, 30, she'll 30 people yeah, in right. confidence. Yeah, it was probably three or four. But yes, it was enough people to know that she was intentional about it to, to make sure that I knew. So yeah, I would like to get married again. I have to figure out how to love again. For 26 years, I loved one person. And now I'm supposed to say to this new person, I love you. And it's supposed to mean the same thing in some sense. Well, of course it doesn't. It, it's, it, so it's just not there yet. And I don't know if I have to be married for 26. I was only married for 18, but I was with her for eight years before that. So since I was 18 years old, I've been with her. I don't know any other hmm. kind of love. That's, hmm. that's my love. So you lose that and now you're going to, okay, now we want that again. Well, I didn't, you didn't get that overnight. You got that over 26 years of being with her. So where do I, I, I don't know how to go about this. I, I think that like that, this would be a, a challenging reality for anyone in your situation, for somebody that, and people d do do it. I mean, people, again, people are widows and widowers and with families and find loving it. But do you think it, it, it seems like as a pastor, it could be challenging in a different way. I mean, like I, I even just mm -hmm. think, and you're a Baptist pastor and like dating with a family as a widower and you're like, Hey, I'm a Baptist pastor. <laughs> yeah. Like, is that, does that present a new set of challenges or do you think, I mean, well, you've only been kind of a Baptist pastor. So you're not, like, I don't know. You're like, well, when I was dating as a construction worker before I met Jack, I mean, you don't really have that frame <laughs> yeah, of reference. Is, but my only, well, I've done a lot of jobs in my life besides Baptist pastor, but I don't, I don't think the Baptist part of it means a whole lot, or maybe it doesn't, I don't know about it, but the pastor part of it means a lot because, I mean, everyone always has friends that are on your side and they're like, well, I really loved her and I don't know how I'm going to love this other person. With the church, it seems magnified. So bringing her to the church, you know, a new girlfriend to the church, that, that was, uh, that was difficult. It was difficult to introduce her to people, um, any, in fact, any girl that I started dating and I brought that, that was a weird feeling. And how many dates before they're allowed to come around? Um, how, well, so some of these are long distance dates. So, <laughs> uh, I don't know if we're going to talk about my whole dating life in this whole, but, um, only, I only introduced two people to people in the church. Let's just say that. This is um, like the religious bachelor. Yes. I believe you've said that to me before. Yeah. This would be a great it, reality show. Yeah. I actually had one of the girls say that, and that is not at all the way it is. Trust me. If that ever happens, I want to share the profits of that because that I thought that I've got copyright. This is yeah. recorded now. Yeah. That was my idea. Yeah, it's definitely been interesting because some people have been, you know, as I introduced her to someone, you know, they would shake her hand and say, "How you doing?" But they wouldn't talk, right? Because there's this like reality, like, okay, he's is he moving on? Has he forgotten her? There's all these thoughts, and and they're not mean. They're just they haven't gotten past it yet either. Yeah. And I haven't either. And I tell them that I'm like, I'm not over her either. I'm trying to take steps not to get over her because I'll never be over her. She will always have a place in my heart. I mean, and this There's is no different, right? If you were a lawyer or a, or, you know, if you were a banker or something, it probably, yeah. the whole bank probably wouldn't be like, oh my God. You know, as a, I mean, no, it is. It is, it is a share. I mean, there, you've got the beauty of the shared suffering, but then there's the challenge of it. Like, it's almost like, well, we've all got to date her now. Or we all got to, you know. Right. Yeah. Everybody has to accept her yeah. because they all, they were all in love with my wife. Right. Whereas if you're just a banker or construction worker or whatever, they don't really know the wife. Maybe they see her once in a while at a party or something like that, but they knew her. They lived with, I mean, we lived in the same community. We did stuff together. She was friends of everybody. So yeah, they all mourned together and they all hurt together and they're all trying to move forward without her. And it's, it, it's quite a difficult process. 
And it's hard for me because I don't want them to move forward too fast. So it's like thinking about my children, right? I don't, I don't want them to think that I've replaced my wife in any way, their mom, right? So I had long talks with them about this stuff before I started talking with any girls um, and took them along with me and made sure they were very comfortable. I didn't do that with the church. Maybe I should have because they're suffering too. They're hurting too. So, and you know, I've, I think I've done a good job with my children. They, not in general, I'm not that great of a dad, but in, you're in a pretty good dad. You're this, a pretty good dad. In this particular area, I have, I've asked their opinions on everything and I've tried to move forward. I, I can't imagine your listeners want to hear all this stuff, but people maybe. love, people love things. Like, now, yeah, well, you know, it is interesting. I mean, you've, one of the things that I think there are not a lot of spaces where people talk about things like this yeah. with, you know, like, I mean, and, and lots of people are going, everybody's going, everybody's suffering, first of all. And, and lots of people are dealing with all sorts of losses in their lives. And uh, to have somebody that's in a complex situation to deal with love and loss is, is, is I think it, it's, thank you for letting people listen in on what you're going through. Yeah. Maybe it'll be helpful for someone who's either going through it or, who's watching somebody else go through it because there's a lot of dumb things that are set out there to maybe to be quiet, just to be there. Yeah. I, I wish, I mean, I could probably write several articles on that just on how, how to react, how to, because people still don't know how to react. They come in and sit in my office. And the great thing is I've got a few people that are close enough to me. They just sit down and says, I have no idea how to say anything to you right now. Like, I don't have a clue how, what's going to help you. I, I'm, I'm going to suck at this. Any ideas on what I should do? I love that. Like, yeah, but thank shouldn't you for that, that be the default That's approach wonderful. to anyone in suffering? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, just don't, like, I don't know what to do, but I'm here. Yeah. That, that would be wonderful. And then let them tell you, right? Because they might, they might know exactly what you should do. Like, yeah. oh, you know what? Why don't, can you just, can you just take me out of this office and go see a movie? Yeah. <laughs> like, I sure can. Can you go treat me to a pizza? Yep. I mean, I'd give you a $500 right now if it made you feel good. Yeah. I'll treat you to a $10 pizza. Yeah, that, that's, and just talk and not talk about her or talk about her. Sometimes I really want to and nobody's, yeah. nobody will. Like we don't, we're afraid that you don't want to talk. I, I, I want them to say, can we talk about her? Is that all right? Yeah, it is. Please. Can we, can we reminisce together? Can I cry a little bit with you without making you feel uncomfortable? I need that. I need that so yeah, do, much. Don't you think so often that people's need to either say something or fix it is a function of alleviating their own anxiety? Yeah, like, like is it, 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 it because then if they could get over their own anxiety, they could be present to the other person's pain. But I, I think that's such an anxiety-producing reality to be in front of another person really in pain yep. that it's almost like you do anything to avoid that moment. Yeah, and having been in the depth of that, I'm still not that much better at it. Like I'm still a pastor, and I still have to do that. I have to be in the midst of other people's pain and suffering, and I still want to relieve my own anxiety and those kinds of things. So I get it. I totally understand it. I don't want to just sit and be present. I want to answer questions for them. I want to give them advice. I want to whatever. And it takes all of my energy to talk about something else or to ask them how they want me to treat them, what they're looking for, because there's no uniform way of doing things. Some people want you to answer questions and to, you know, they... Like I have honest questions and I need you to, they want to interact with those things. Some people just want you to be quiet and just watch TV with them. You know, you're sitting in a hospital bed, just watch Jeopardy with me. I, I don't, I don't need you to do anything. So just, just be open and honest. If you, you know, if you're, if you're that close with somebody that you're going to go visit them when they're hurting, I hope you can have that kind of conversation with them and get them, get them gift cards, get them gift cards, write in a note. 
please do not respond to this this <laughs> this note. Here is a Chick-fil-A gift card for $10. Go out and have, you know, but don't make them reply and tell them specifically, this is my advice to everyone, please tell them specifically, you may not respond to this. You may not give me a thank you. Hmm. Because even those of us going through grief, I mean, I got I got so many little gifts and cards of, you know, we love you, we're on your... And I felt this guilt hmm. that I had to respond to those people. Hmm. And, and Jack did. She had a long list. She had like pages and pages of people who would send her stuff while she was suffering in her last four months. And she she went through most of them and she got stuff out to them, not in the last month, unfortunately, but before that. She, she felt she had to. Yeah. Right. And for her, it wasn't as much about guilt as it was, I just really want to tell them I love them and I appreciate yeah. them. So hers wasn't, but mine was guilt. Like, I feel like I've got to do it. I'm so tired of writing people thank you notes. I am appreciative. I love you all. But don't make people do that. Don't just tell them they're not allowed to. Yeah, love without strings attached. Yeah. Jace, thanks for talking with me. We'll do this again. I and, appreciate uh, it very much. Yeah, this was great. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds, go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And do check out Jace's sermons. If you go to PoolsvilleBaptist.com, you can find them there, or you can search in iTunes under Poolsville Baptist. And he also hosts a radio show called Faith Debate that is also accessible in iTunes. Check it out. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, fare me well.